0: Hi, I'm Stephanie Francis Warren, and you're listening to the ABA Journal's Asked and Answered, a podcast about lawyers' personal and professional lives. As part of a special series, we're taking a look back about how various areas of the law have changed and what that means for those in the practice areas. For today's show, we're focusing on the changes for female law school faculty. And my guests are Joan Howarth, the former dean of Michigan State University Law College, who's now a distinguished visiting professor at William S. Boyd School of Law at the University of Nevada, and Sean Scott, the dean and president of California Western School of Law. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Thanks, Stephanie. Could you both tell me? Let's start with uh, Professor Howarth. What was your first law school teaching position? And at the time, how many other women were there? And what year was it?
1: Actually, my first law school teaching position was a couple months after I graduated from law school when I became a teaching fellow at Stanford's Law School. And that was in 1980. And at that time, there were I was one of six teaching fellows, four of us were women, two were men. On the real faculty at Stanford, there were two women. There was one African-American man. There was one uh, Chicano man, and that was it. And so it was uh, one of our jokes of the other fellows and, and me was that the only reason they let us, the little lowly fellows, come to the faculty talks for uh, lunchtime, for scholarship, was so that it wouldn't be completely men everywhere except for the two women. So it was pretty obvious then that it was uh, highly um, gendered. It was a world of uh, of middle-aged, some young, some middle-aged, some older white men was what the uh, whole law school faculty was there. And that was not very different from the law school that I had just come from being a student in. It was not too different from when I started in regular full-time teaching at the end of that decade in 1989.
0: You went to law school at USC, right? Correct. I'm curious, with the fellowship, did the fellows have the impression that they might have a job offer from Stanford after the fellowship ended?
1: Not from Stanford. The point of the fellowship was for people like me who thought that we might want to become law professors. And so if you went to a A school that wasn't the most fancy kind of law school, you know, solid, wonderful law school, but not the most elite. One way to become a law professor was to go on and get a fellowship at one of the really fancy law schools. So it was was considered burnishing your resume. and um, But the goal was to get a job at some other law school. And um, so we would never have been in that pool. As I said, it was somewhat remarkable in the sense that we remarked on it, but they let us come to their lunches. Uh,
0: Dean Scott, tell us about uh, your first uh, teaching position.
2: So uh, I started off um, at Loyola Law School in 1989. And at that time, uh, we were about, uh, female faculty constituted about uh, 30% of the faculty. Um, and uh, I don't, I'm not, I'm, I'm not sure that that it has increased that much. I think we hover uh, still um, in the academy at about somewhere 40%, something like that. I was the first African-American woman to get tenure at Loyola. You know, we were, there were, actually, uh, one of the things that attracted me was that there were uh, seven of us who were faculty of color at that time, which was a pretty high number. And... I was a corporate lawyer before I went, I graduated from NYU. So I made my way to the academy kind of, uh, it wasn't part of my overall plan. Unlike, uh,
0: you were at Manat before you went to Loyola, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Do you think in this day and age, it's interesting to say, well, it wasn't part of my overall plan. Do you think it's even possible to get a tenure track, uh, position now if it's not part of your overall plan. is like you have no. to start planning for it as a one out.
2: <laughs> you do. You have to have somebody who takes an interest in you and guides you and lets you know that this, these are the things you need to do while you're in law school to get yourself on the path. Um, it's one of the reasons that diversifying the profession is so important. When I was at NYU, um, it was my third year before NYU made its first faculty of color tenured, granted, or call it Caldwell. Uh, And, you know, without somebody uh, looking at me and saying, oh, I think you could be a law professor, there was nobody to guide us. So there were no mentors or nobody. There was nobody. I was a good student, uh, but nobody looked at me and thought, oh, she'd be a good law professor material. So, no, I don't think it's possible to do what I did. It's we know that um, uh, Sarah Lasky from Northwestern compiles data annually on tenure track hiring. Uh, And we know uh, that last year I just kind of gave this talk um, over 90 percent of the uh, people who were hired either had a fellowship as described by Professor Howard or uh, a Ph.D. And almost 35 percent had both. So now there's no casual admission to uh, to the academy anymore.
0: How did you decide that you wanted to leave private practice and go do this?
2: I liked practicing corporate law. I liked the substance, uh, but the lifestyle was oppressive to me. I had no control over my life. My clients absolutely came first. And as much as I liked the intellectual puzzles, um, I I really liked the law and I liked seeing how the pieces could come together. Uh, It was just not compatible with the way that I wanted to live my life. And uh, as I thought, uh, as we, my husband and I, uh, thought about having children, I was faced with the prospect of having a daytime nanny and a nighttime nanny and a weekend nanny, uh, because you always had to have somebody there as a backup in the event that you weren't, that I was not able to be there, and that was just not how I wanted to parent. And so, uh, a colleague, <laughs> you know, fate is all, but uh, a colleague of of uh, my husband's with whom he had attended law school is a faculty member at UCLA. Um, Her name is Kimberly Crenshaw. So I called Kim up and I said, thinking that I want to teach, how do I do it? And she was my mentor into the profession.
0: Nice. I'm curious, when you were at Manat, were there other uh, women or uh, lawyers of color who were equity partners at the LA office?
2: In the LA office, there was one African-American man who was an equity partner. And maybe... There was a handful of women who were equity partners, not very many.
0: So it sounds like if I'm hearing this right, you guys both started tenure track positions in 1989. Is that correct? Yes. Mm -hmm. Okay. And Professor, you were with the ACLU before you went to, Davis was the first spot, right? Yes,
1: uh, I was with the ACLU for five years after that. Initial year at Stanford, I decided that unlike my professors, I should actually practice law before becoming a law professor and then I ended up having dream opportunities and spent um, and, and didn't come back until 1989.
0: Now I'm thinking when I watched uh, your uh, your interview with the I was watching a really good interview with the former Dean of Toro. and I'm thinking you said you got your first law school job because you met someone at a party or something that was involved with Davis. Is that correct? And can you share that story with us? Sure.
1: The, um, this is a pretty unusual story about the network of the very tiny little number of lesbian law professors that existed. And uh, when I was in L.A. working for the ACLU, I was part of the feminist, what did they call it, feminist critical theory group that would meet regularly. And through that, I met, uh, Pat Kane and Jean Love, and they were both teaching in LA at the time. And the way that I got my job at Davis, which was actually, I need to correct what you said. I didn't become a tenured track person in 1989. I was a visiting professor. As I used to say, I was visiting from life. I had uh, decided to become, a uh, um, a law professor, but I didn't know anything about how to do it. And I made that, I, uh, my partner and I were moving back to the Bay Area. And then about January, I wrote to each of the six law schools and said, I'd like to become a law professor. And um, they all said, Thank you, uh, but we, we're finished. Um, that was a whole cycle that you missed. Um, good luck. And um, except that who, the person who was substituting as a professor for Jean Love at Davis, ended up uh, leaving, and they needed a substitute substitute. And uh, somebody called Jean Love, and she recommended me, which is how I got that job, which is how I had my career. And the way I knew the way I knew um, Jean Love and Pat came even more from the, than from that uh, feminist group was uh, we first met at a, a lesbian wedding of another law professor in Los in Los Angeles
0: I was curious so during that time period I mean from what I remember a lot of professors who were gay were not out and what was it like being an out professor in 1989
1: and 1990 they were such different times people who didn't live through it will have a hard time believing it that it was um that people were as closeted that in the legal profession and certainly in uh, law schools when I, so I was at Davis as a visitor and I I, um, chose to come um, to start the, as a visitor and then tenure track in Golden Gate in San Francisco, because I was living in Oakland and, um, and the liveliness of Golden Gate attracted me and the, uh, and there was a lot, particularly related to diversity at Davis at that time, that was not impressive to me. But one of the things to just to surprise people today about is that the the gay groups at law schools existed, but would typically move would meet off campus. They the law the classes other than at Golden Gate, and even early on at Golden Gate, the Gay and and sexual orientation in the law classes had fake names so that they wouldn't taint anybody's um, transcript. So it would be something like um, advanced privacy issues, which sounds terrible and is terrible, but it's not. It was not any different from the fact that the gay uh, lawyers' organizations also had fake names. The, the The gay lawyers in L.A. were the lawyers for human rights, and the gay lawyers in San Francisco in the Bay Area were the Bay Area lawyers for individual freedom. So it's a the time the closeting is just unthinkable now, but it was really quite real. And the last anecdote that I can give you about it is when I was on was at Golden Gate. And I was trying to organize a, um, I don't know, will say a party or a caucus. And I um, called around to people, my friends at various law schools. And at the time in the Bay Area in the early nineties, I was the only openly lesbian tenure track professor at a law school in the Bay Area of California. And in 1991, around that time, the legal paper there and the recorder had a big story when Stanford hired Janet Halley as a, a new professor. And part of what was so remarkable to me was Janet had the impeccable credentials, right? She had her JD from Yale law school. She had a PhD from UCLA. She was a circuit court um, clerk. She had been previously, uh, t- I think a tenure track English professor at Hamilton College. She was working for one of the fancy law firms, Skadden, or one of the other uh, law firms. And the headline in the recorder, the San Francisco legal newspaper, when she was hired was bold new hire. And the only way it was a bold new hire was that she was openly lesbian. Right,
2: Yes. So the women faculty at Loyola, my first school, we used to meet off campus as well right we we would go some, to somebody's house and you know we would talk about our professional development we talked about all kinds of things but we met off campus regularly we we felt we could be freer can
0: you tell me more about that dean was it that you didn't want to seem as you were complaining or were not tough enough it was that we needed
2: to be strategic <laughs> i mean you know as we were you know where we were kind of figuring out uh, so we were stuck at 30%. We'd go through these hiring cycles where we would bring in women that we thought met the criteria uh, for hiring. And yet somehow we never moved the dial to going beyond 30%. And, um, you know, we were kind of at, at what Derek Bell would have called the tipping point where more than that felt too threatening, right? Where they were like, oh, well, there's, wait, we, there are enough women. There are enough, uh, which was never said. <laughs> Certainly not said about white men. They're enough. Um, And so a lot of those meetings were, how do we change the culture of our law school? How do we get to a point where we have parental leave, which we did not have? You know, everything was at the discretion of the dean and all of the deans were men. Uh, And so um, they were strategy sessions. They were uh, sessions to talk about negative student evaluations or um, interactions with students who were not kind of giving us the same respect that they gave other our, our male counterparts. It was how do we ask for a raise? So it, it it was they were it was a safe place to talk about the challenges that we encountered largely because of our gender and it felt better to be in a safe space at home where we knew nobody was going to kind of walk in and wonder what we were doing.
0: So this is sadly a negative question, but perhaps sometimes true, and perhaps more so back in the 90s. When you were meeting, how did you know you could trust each other?
2: Well, because uh, you had to deliberately come. It wasn't (laughs) right. (laughs) And so if you were going to go to the trouble... You weren't
0: interested, you weren't there. Okay.
2: Yep. yep, exactly. And if you came to one and didn't and it wasn't your thing, then you just didn't come to the next
0: one. How often would you guys meet? Like once a month, once a quarter? Um, we'd probably write, meet twice a semester, something like that. And it was at people's homes, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Can you share, are there like any interesting or funny or heartwarming for stories that came out of some of those meetings that you can share with us?
2: For me, it was affirming because... I could talk about the challenges of trying to get tenure while also trying to parent, and you know, at that the time when my my after my first child, the arrangement that I had was my dean gave me time off, but then told me that the time off I had to make up by teaching um, an overload, teaching more units, right? And kind of doing that when I had a child who was not yet sleeping through the night, uh, trying to just figure out how to do that and being in a room full of women who, well, one of them did say, well, that you should plan your next pregnancy for the summer so you don't inconvenience the law school. That was one bit of advice, Uh, but the other, which I ignored, but the heartwarming part was to be not told that I had to conform to a male standard, to be told that, that it was possible, that wanting to be a parent was not a negative thing. Um, so that's the heartwarming part, Stephanie, is that I was within a community of women that weren't trying to minimize my struggle, right? And to try to tell me that I was just kind of imagining the slights or to be at a place where the negative faculty, evalu- student evaluations were coming in People didn't say things like, well, maybe you should bake them cookies, right? Um, where Which was advice that one of my male colleagues did give one of my female colleagues. So um, to be heard and honored and respected, that's the best thing that came out of those meetings.
0: Dean, I'm going to interrupt for one second. I'm going to get you to pause that story because I know that you guys work together to get Better conditions for uh, maternity leave. And I'm going to ask you to tell that story when we cut back. Let's take a quick break and we'll be right back.
1: Be the best resource you can for your Spanish speaking clients with the Spanish Group's legal translation service. Experienced translators ensure accurate translation of your documents with same day delivery. Confidentiality is ensured and the Spanish Group guarantees acceptance for certified translations. All that and their rates are competitive. If you need other languages, the Spanish Group translates in over 140 languages. Mention Legal Talk 20 when you request your quote for 20% off your first translation. Visit thespanishgroup.org.
2: Filing court documents, serving legal papers, collecting electronic signatures, all critical parts of the litigation process, yet ones that are time-consuming and error-prone— But what if you could do more straight from your case or document management software? InfoTrack automates data entry, document selection, tracking, and information syncing across all these core tasks and more by integrating with your core systems like Clio, Smokeball, Leap, MyCase, and others. Spend more time on substantive legal work and less time on busy work. Learn how simple it can be at InfoTrack.com simple.
0: Delegate out those tasks that take up your time. Staffy can help you with your legal, administrative, marketing, and even client-facing workload. Hiring Staffy's top-notch bilingual virtual staff means Staffy does the recruiting, hiring, and training for you. Then, if you need a change, Staffy handles it. You get to concentrate on your strategic work. Schedule a free consultation at Staffy.cc. That's S-T-A-F-I dot and get $500 off with code HAPPY24. And we're back. I'm Stephanie Francis-Ward, and on today's episode of the APA Journal's Asked and Answered, I'm speaking with Joan Howarth, the former dean of Michigan State University College of Law, who's now a distinguished visiting professor at UNLV Boyd Law School, and Sean Scott. She's the dean and president of California Western School of Law. So, Dean Scott, you guys did not have great parental leave when you started, but you and some other uh, professors with the, at this law school, Matt, they said, change that. Can you tell us what happened?
2: We did. So um, I've told this story a couple of times because I think it's an astonishing one. So uh, when I learned that I was pregnant with my first child, I went to my dean and said, uh, I'm expecting what is our parental leave policy. I rocked back in his chair and he said, two weeks. You'll want a break from the baby by then anyway." So I had just within that past year and a half left my fancy uh, corporate job. And I thought, well, I can go back to that. They would love to have me back or I can figure out how to change this. So I went back uh, to the women faculty and I said, we should have a parental leave policy. It was not uh, unanimous. There were some uh, women who, you know, thought that we needed to be just like the men, right, that we didn't, it's kind of that old classic tension of, do we want to take gender into account, or do we want to pretend that we are men? How do we get to a state of equality, right? This is one of the classic tensions, I think, that arises uh, in feminist literature, Uh, one that we still haven't resolved, right? It comes up in the Supreme Court cases as well. In any event, uh, we did um, begin to pull policies from Across the board, and we ultimately uh, did challenge the dean as a group, and we had some male faculty uh, join us in our effort to get a parental leave policy. So, uh, as a group, we confronted the then dean and said, "We need to have a parental leave policy," Um, and he uh, acceded to our requests. His his first, as I said, individually what he simply allowed me to do was to defer my teaching. It wasn't forgiven. Uh, So we would ordinarily teach at that time 11 units. Uh, So I I took a semester off and then I had to make up the six units that I did not teach um, over the course of the next two semesters. So, um, which I did, which was uh, less than ideal. Uh, but I made that deal, but and uh, having made that deal, I then went back and organized it in the faculty. We were we were able to get a leave, but ironically enough, kind of going to Professor Howitt's comment, uh, we did not call it a parental leave, or at that time it was maternity leave. The dean designated it as a research leave because he thought that that would be more acceptable. So it wasn't a year, it was years before it actually was called
0: parental leave policy. Did that concern you a bit? Because in theory, you probably weren't doing a lot of research during that leave because you were caring for a newborn and getting yourself, right? I'd be afraid, well, if they call me on this later, there's not going to be a lot of research being done in these two months.
2: You know, I think it's one of the lessons about how social change happens, right? I think for me, kind of, uh, so I'm 60 one almost. Um, And I think back and I think, uh, so I was seven or eight, right, kind of when we really began to have the start of the civil rights movement. So in some ways, I look back at the civil rights movement, and I see huge change, right? I think about the March on Washington, and I see social change and social movements as though they were, you know, larger than life events. But really, social change happens on a very local level, most of the time and the change is incremental. There are kind of cataclysmic moments, but they're not really how change happens, I think. And so to have time off, to have a semester off, whatever we called it, was a good first step. Is it where we wanted to end up? No, Uh, but uh, it was a step in the right direction. And that's really how I think change happens in some ways. So uh, did it make me happy? No, in terms of the label. Was I happy to have the time when my second child came along? Absolutely.
0: Got it. So as female faculty, how has advocating for yourself and finding supporters changed over the years? Professor Howarth, would you like to take that first?
1: In the beginning of my career as a law professor, it was true that the women were... um, A small, small number. In fact, when you were talking about needing to and choosing to meet outside the law school, I remembered for the first time in decades that whenever three women in the law school would be talking together, uh, a male colleague would walk by and make a joke about us making, you know, what were we up to and, and what were we plotting? And so it was a a sign of the anxiety about the potential threat of um, what was perceived to be sort of uh, intruders in some way. And, but then what happened, I think, is that the numbers got larger. And uh, so the fact of being a woman on the faculty by itself uh, became less provocative. And I would say that the major change now is that the gender issues that I see in law schools that are incredibly significant today are issues related to the status of different categories of professors, and so we have there are women who are full professors, and there are women who are deans, and there are women women in every every situation, but it's also true that um, the women are grouped. Many of the um, the typically worst jobs in the law school as a professor are the jobs where most of the women are. So that would be teaching legal writing and academic support and uh, to a certain extent, um, clinical professors.
2: Yeah, I can't remember the faculty member who was looking at this closely, but his hypothesis is that more women were allowed into the academy when men realized that we would do the work that they did not want to do. And so all of a sudden, we became useful. So we were willing uh, to do the heavy loads of legal uh, research and writing and the heavy load of clinical teaching, which is combined with low pay and fewer voting rights. So typically, people who teach legal writing, people who teach our clinics, do not uh, get to vote on all matters concerning the governance of the law school. So our admission into the profession, I think perhaps does not coincide with the realization that men could relieve themselves of that work while not ceding their privilege and control because they would we are not granted, they continue to not be granted full rights. Right. So I'm at a school now that just now, just this past year, adopted a unitary tenure. That means everybody who teaches, is whether it's the clinical teaching or legal writing, is tenure eligible. So you know we are. I think there are maybe thirty percent of law schools who have that kind of possibility. Right, thirty percent, even now. And so it is true. We we are in the academy in greater numbers. But it is I think worth noting that the vast majority of people who teach legal writing are female overwhelming, right? It, there are articles written about it called the pink ghetto. So it's it's a little bit of a mixed blessing. And I think the same is true with deanships, right? I think that absolutely the number of deanships has increased, but we are concentrated at the less fancy schools. Uh, and I think that, again, it, those are the least prestigious jobs that we tend to fill.
1: Cynics could also notice that the percentage of women and more recently women of color in deanships came up after the economic downturn of the Great Recession, when suddenly being a law school dean became a job with um, tremendous difficulty that had not previously existed in the same way. And that we're doing this job, but it's not the same job that deans had 15 years ago, 20 years ago, 30 years ago. It's not at all the same job. This is a hard day-to-day operational um, set of um, tremendous tasks. And so women have come in to to take on those tasks, Um, but they don't have, it's not the same life, I think, that uh, a dean used to have.
0: I'm so happy you brought that up, Professor, because I have been thinking that, but I wasn't sure how to word it exactly. And I think you put it really well. So thank you.
2: It's not the feather in your cap to, you know, to end your uh, your academic uh, career.
0: How did you, uh, let's take it back again a bit. How did you deal with gender discrimination when you faced it? Because I think it wasn't, not that it's easy to deal with now, but- I'm thinking it might've been a little worse to deal with back when your um, academic career started. Is, that, is it accurate or is it still kind of the same today?
1: So what I would say is that I didn't ever, I was not conscious of feeling um, in any way discrimination on the basis of being a woman in terms of my individual career. And that's partly, I think, because I never had children and therefore I was able to do as much work as I wanted to be able to do without having the other obligations and other, you know, other aspects of a wonderful life that many women have. I think that it's also true, if I'm honest, I didn't have very many problems once I was in a position um, with my lesbian identity and in a weird way in those early years I think it was harder to be an openly gay man than it was to be a lesbian woman in this straight white male culture because the men who were in charge and they were in charge it was their world right we were all just making our way into a world that they had created and that they controlled. um, Basically, straight white men controlled the law schools that I was anywhere near. And those men were sometimes unsure about how to deal with a straight woman. And they were often highly anxious about how to deal with a gay man. But they could think of me as sort of more like one of the guys. And in a weird way, and I don't mean to say that's right. I'm just saying it was a a strange, unexpected reality um, for me that there were ways that I could fit in. On the other hand, uh, I was proud that I was able to use my ability to fit in to try and create some better policies. And, for example, sexual harassment policies that didn't exist that I led a charge to be able to have um, created and imposed. Because when I was a student and then when I was a professor, the worst problem at Golden Gate for sure when I was a professor there, and one of the worst problems at USC when I was a student there was the um, male professors who treated the student body, the women in the student body as a dating pool. And it was so wrong. And I had, you know, nothing to do about that, or I could do nothing as a student. But at Golden Gate, I felt very happy about um, helping to have that become one of the first law schools that had a no, no romantic relationship policy adopted, um, which was a big thing.
2: Well, we didn't even have when you when you started, Joan, in you know there was, no, there, there was no word for that experience, right? I mean, it was really because of feminist legal scholars who named it harassment, right? right? and um, named it as, uh, as um, not about sex but about power. I mean I mean, there were, there were people who just who gave us a word for that concept and for that harm. So there was no possibility of having a policy because we didn't have a name for it yet. And that is absolutely something that has drastically changed, and is definitely goes down to women writing and thinking about this in law review articles and other places. And in that sense, that's a, truly been a revolution, because you can't—if you can't name the harm, right—that you are experiencing. And when people can say, "But how short was your dress, right? Or how low cut was your blouse?" as a way of explaining somebody else's or dismissing somebody else's behavior. You don't have the power to change
0: it. Dean, if students came to you to talk to you about that or maybe fellow faculty that were more junior than you, what would you tell them? Because as you say, if you don't have a name, I mean, we all know for years that this was happening and it's very troublesome but as you said, if you don't have a name for it and it's just taken is this is what happens, I mean, how, what would you say? Remember, we used to talk about how to keep each other safe, right? I mean, I remember when you'd be warned about certain professors by other women.
2: That's exactly right, right? So you say to students, don't ever meet with a faculty member with the door closed, right? And you'd say, don't ever accept an invitation to go and have lunch with a faculty member off campus. So... We we did not, you know, kind of, even if we came to understand it as a harm of power, the impetus was on us to not put ourselves in those situations, as opposed to checking the men, right? And so flipping the 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 script there is truly, I think, something that has is revolutionary, right? And it's interesting. I mean gender discrimination, race discrimination, that and all the time. I mean, the microaggressions don't stop, right? And they, you know, even as I was applying for this deanship, you know, the, the presumptions, I don't get the benefit of competence, right? I've got to prove that I can do the job. I don't get the benefit of the doubt, which I think is not true of my White-Nall, um colleagues. But I will say that one of the things that has happened for me, certainly this past year, is that I no longer feel as though I have to humor the microaggressions. I no longer have to. I no longer feel as though I have to, you know, carefully pick my battles when I'm going to push back. Maybe it's a consequence of age. <laughs> Maybe it's a consequence of being uh, fed up. Maybe it's the consequence of technology that nobody can say to me any longer. You're just imagining, right? We have you know, the the horrible recordings of the murder of George Floyd. And we have the recordings, the subsequent recordings of um, the abuse. We have people kind of talking about me, too. And so the, the ability to just kind of say you're just being overly sensitive is gone. Because when that happens, when you suffer the, the harm and then somebody minimizes the harm, you know, it's like reliving it twice. And um, that I, that's no longer the case, that reliving it twice no longer happens has been extraordinarily liberty rating. It's been terrific. I feel comfortable with making other people uncomfortable the way that I have been made uncomfortable forever.
0: Dean, do you ever worry or feel like we might be backtracking a bit on that aspect of speaking out? when you're mistreated. I mean, we've seen a lot about whether things that have been said in classes were academic speech or inappropriate and made people feel uncomfortable. And I'm wondering if we're at a time now that people who were afraid, there's this, people are always, people in power usually want to keep on doing what they're doing, but they might've been afraid to speak out. Certainly during the Trump administration, because some people felt like they didn't want to be identified with that whole thing. But are you do you feel like people are more I mean, we might be going back just a little bit and it's like there's this idea people are too sensitive. Students are too sensitive.
2: Well, I guess so let me let me think about your question this way. One of the questions, I think one of the arguments against my calling out what I see the microaggression is that it makes people fearful of engaging in dialogue, right? Nobody wants to be called a racist nobody wants to be called well that's probably the you know that's become the worst thing that uh, that you can accuse somebody of um and so the the concern is is that silencing so as a law professor i do believe in the importance of dialogue i do believe in the importance of creating a safe space to have hard conversations but I don't think that it's my responsibility any longer, either as a woman or a person of color, to tolerate ignorance. So I think it, is, it become incumbent upon people to educate themselves about the harm that they do. And so to that degree, I think having to check yourself is okay. I don't I think that the, that any longer the excuse of I didn't know just doesn't work anymore. So when I think of when I talk to my faculty here at Cal Western about introducing the subjects of race or oppression generally, their first response is, well, I don't know how to talk about race. It makes me uncomfortable. And I say, that's because you think you've got to talk about what it's like to be a brown person or what it might like be to be a woman under these circumstances. That's not what you need to talk about. You need to talk about the flip side of oppression, which is privilege. You can talk about that all day long. So when we talk about race, everybody has a race. And when we talk about gender, everybody has at least one. And so the goal is to speak about your experience of either being on the oppressed side or the privileged side. So when I talk in contracts about women not being able to sign a contract or people of color not being able to assign a contract, the flip side of that is that men have always been able to do so. And that allows them to control resources because they can contract. They can contract for their own labor. They can contract for the sale and purchase of goods that benefit them without competition. So when I think about race and contracts, it's not just that I couldn't, but somebody else could. So thinking about that, right? Understanding the way in which subordination occurs and the way in which privilege occurs is something that is incumbent upon everybody in society to learn. And it's not necessarily my obligation to teach it. It is your obligation to learn it. And therefore to walk into a situation With an awareness, right, of what that looks like, what that sounds like, what that feels like.
0: Well, and did the two of you think, in terms of what is and is not appropriate to say in the classroom, that it has really changed? And this generation of students, they are, I mean, perhaps better at advocating for themselves and their peers about what's appropriate and what's not. Like, I think the use of the N word. In um, lectures or tests, that's been a that would be an example. And things things are different now, and students will call you on that, um, professor. What do you think? And was this something you could have ever? And maybe that's a little bit of too much of a radical um, example, but could you see students speaking out in the way that they have, say, in the past five years, and having success for change?
1: I think the students, I mean, it's a, of course, it's a gross generalization, but um, generationally, the students that we're lucky enough to have now bring a readiness for advocacy that is so different from what prior generations had. They also have a um, willingness to be vulnerable that is, again, it's a gross overgeneralization. I know that law school pushes students in the opposite direction, But I'm amazed at the number of students I have who are open about uh, the troubles that they have and the struggles that they have and and mental health issues that um, have always been there but have always been hidden in my experience um, until relatively recently. So I think the student body is um, extraordinarily encouraging. I also think that there are some tensions that I've had related to students preferring to be able to avoid some of the really harsh work that is difficult that we need to do in law school. I had, for the first time a couple years ago, I had a student, for example, who uh, came to me about wanting to have had trigger warnings as to some of the materials in the torts, um, particularly related to sexual assault uh, case that we had. And I I was really impressed by her arguments. And, and I also though, I didn't do what she wanted me to do. Um, because I had said at the very beginning of the torts class, this is about injury, this is about harm. All of you have a, you know, I'm going to set it up so you have a chance, you have a choice for when you're going to take yourself out of having to be called on by me, because some of this is going to be very personal. But it's, as I said to that student, it's not for me to say that the sexual assault cases are going to be more triggering than the the baby who dies. You know, when we have people who've had a variety of experiences, sexual assault is different because it's so prevalent, but it's not, in many ways, it's not worse and it's not the only harm that we're talking about. So I want you to have a kind of a global readiness to understand that we're going to have to deal with material that is unsettling and uncomfortable and with incredible injustice, right? We're studying injustice far as I can see more than more studying justice. And so you can't, you can't have a trigger warning on everything.
0: Dean, would you like to weigh in on that and how students oftentimes are different now than they were when you started teaching? I agree. I think
2: there is certainly um, more willingness to say, I don't want to participate. And I think that uh, I agree with Professor Howitz. Management of that, you know, if it's if it's something that you want to absent yourself from the discussion, like you certainly have the option to do that. But it is important to understand the harms, right? It's also important for me to as um, to for people to understand like where we were as a society and what what courts say and write and do. It's really important for me to, for students to understand that courts are are filled with people who bring their biases into the classroom, I mean, into the courtroom and in their opinion. And so that is why it's so important to diversify the judiciary, because these are not you know, rulings from down on high. They're made by people. And um, people bring all of their political, social, socioeconomic selves into the courtroom, into their opinions. And I think students need to see that because it's important to understand that that in seeing that, where do we want to um, mount the challenge? So when I teach race, gender, and the law, it's really important for my students to um, you know, read the cases that talk about whether um, a Chinese man can testify in court against a white person, right? And sometimes when you read the language that the court uses to describe the China, and uses terms that are derogatory, there's a moment to say, this is where we were. This is, your, this is the Supreme Court writing this opinion. And it's distressing. Sometimes uh, it's comical, right? When you read the line of cases where the court first says, well, everybody knows that a white person is a Caucasian. And then a Caucasian, somebody from the Caucasus Mountains, comes and applies for citizenship. And the court says, oh, no, no, that's not what we meant. We we meant what every white person thinks a white person is, right? So it's, you see the evolution of that doctrine and you need to see the words and the language used, right? So I think it's an important teaching tool. Um, I think it's a marker of where we are as a society. And I think that those are hard things to read and hear. Now, you know, there are some words that I would not say in my classroom, even if they were written in an opinion. And I use that discretion as well, because I'm aware that speaking it may not be uh, necessary. Reading it is sufficient. So, you know, I will take that into consideration, um, perhaps now more than I would have 30 years ago when I started teaching teaching.
0: Professor Andine, that's everything I have for you today. I want to thank you both so much for joining me. This has been a great discussion.
2: Yes, thank you. Thank you for having us, Stephanie. And, and it's always lovely to see you.
0: Thanks, you too. And listeners, thank you for joining us today. If you have ideas for a future show on how much your work has changed over the years, please let me know. I'm on Twitter at SFW, as in Stephanie Francis Ward 70, Roman numeral 2, Or you can email me at stephanie.ward at americanbar.org. Also, if you like what you heard today, please rate us on Apple Podcasts. We'll see you next time for another episode of the ABA Journals Asked and Answered.